Thanks, Anna. <laughs> Would you all pray with me? Jesus, we just give you thanks today. I know in this room we have uh, people here who have been walking with you for a while. Doesn't mean it makes the journey any easier, but they know that you've proven yourself faithful and dependable. We have people here who don't know who you are. They have questions about you. Are you good? Are you who you say you are? They maybe have been hurt by the church. Lord, I just give you thanks for everyone who's in this space. I pray in this next amount of time, Lord, that you would speak to these people, that you would speak to us, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear your voice and to remember how good it is. Jesus, it's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to Hope Brooklyn and to our official launch. Woo! Thank you so much for joining us. Like Anna said, if this is your first time, we are so honored that you're here. Uh, we are a community that believes that no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room for you at the table. And this is an exciting day for Hope Brooklyn because we are launching. And I just want to put another pitch out there. We, we deeply believe, these aren't just words, we deeply believe that there's no question off limits. That this is a community where you're safe to come and doubt and ask questions, hard questions. And I feel safe to, to say, I don't know if I don't know. And we seek together. Um, we are a community of crowds and disciples and a community of the story. Christianity for us is less a set of propositions and it's a story that compels us. We found it so compelling that we are giving up our lives to follow it. And so I just wanna invite you back next week. It's gonna be really exciting. We are gonna talk about hell. And uh, yeah, so say a prayer for me, all right? Um, but it's gonna be fun. And not only is this an exciting day for Hope Brooklyn, it's also an exciting day for Christians. This is the day around which everything that we are and everything that we believe um, is centered. This is the day where we celebrate where Jesus, who is God's son, who came to earth, gave up his God likeness, lived and died. We believe that he was raised, that he was raised back to life. And so today is the reason that we call ourselves Christians. And so wherever you are on the spectrum today, um, maybe you know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, maybe you have no idea, maybe you're coming back to church for the first time in years because you were hurt by the church, wherever you are, this is kind of the question that you need to answer first. Tim Keller says this in one of his sermons or, or one of his books. He goes, um, if Jesus was raised from the dead, everything he says matters. Now we might not know how it matters, but it matters. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then we don't need to bother worrying about anything else he said, because it has no bearing. Paul, who was actually one of the first church planters in the first century, he goes, unless Christ was raised from the dead, then we have wasted our lives. So if you're not a Christian here today, this is the question that you need to, uh, to, to uh, wrestle with first. Was Jesus raised from the dead as we claim? Because if he is, we'll figure everything else out. We might not even know, but we'll figure it out. And I don't want to assume where anyone is today. I don't want to assume where you are on the spectrum. So before we get to our text, I just want to offer a little background about this story, about who Jesus is. So Jesus is a Jewish man who lives in the first century, first century in a region called Judea, modern day Palestine. And he came from the northern parts of that region in Galilee in a town called Nazareth. Now Nazareth was like, not known for producing the creme de la creme. Like if Jesus came to New York City in the 21st century, he'd probably come from Staten Island. I'm sorry, Staten Island, I'm sorry. But yeah, Jose. I just learned that like New York put their trash in Staten Island until 1990 or something. That's crazy, I'm on your team, Staten Island. But he probably would have come from Staten Island. I mean, like, who came from Staten Island? Other than the Wu-Tang Clan, I don't know anyone else. So if you take nothing else from today, Jesus and Wu-Tang came from Staten Island. But he came from this town called Nazareth. And he was a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter named Joseph. And so for the first 30 years of his life, he worked as a carpenter. And then at age 30, something switched. And he began a ministry, an itinerant ministry. 
He started traveling around the region of Judea and Galilee. He started preaching. And from the start, there was something different about Jesus. Crowds flocked to him. And it says in the accounts of his life that he taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who you didn't know, you didn't necessarily agree with everything he said, but you know when he spoke, he was speaking the truth. So people followed him and he taught about the kingdom of God and he forgave people their sins and he said that there was a day coming when God was gonna return. And he not only did he teach, but he also accompanied his teaching with healings. He healed people. And so lepers would come to him and he would touch them and heal them of their leprosy. People who were blind would come to him and he would, and he would heal them of their blindness and give them sight. People who couldn't hear would come to him and he'd open their ears and they could hear. So he was teaching with authority and he was healing the masses. And rumors were spreading about him everywhere like wildfire. And not just healing, but he also cast out demons. There's lots of stories of of parents bringing their children who are demon-possessed or bringing their friends who have demons. And you find something really interesting in the stories, the accounts where he cast out demons. The demons always seem to recognize him. The demons always seem to recognize him. So the demon-possessed person comes forward and you hear them cry out, I know who you are, Jesus. I know who you are, Holy One of God. And Jesus would always shush them. He'd say, be silent. Do not speak and come out of him. See, what's so fascinating about this man's life is that there's a secret about it. There's a secrecy that he never shares, that, that almost follows him, it plagues him, but no one can put their hands exactly on who he is, where he's from, what he's about. Now, he was a teacher, he was a healer, he cast out demons. These are three of the the, the functions that were expected of someone that the Jews were awaiting. This was a title, and the title is Messiah. You may have heard that. Messiah comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, and it means the Lord's anointed. And in the Jewish worldview, in the Jewish religion and culture, they were expecting the Messiah, the Lord's anointed to come back, the Lord's savior, and when he did, the world would end and the new world would begin. When he came back, Israel and all the oppressive powers would be thrown off and Israel would be lifted up and vindicated among the nations. And this Messiah that they believed had all power over every demon and over every sickness. And so as Jesus is traveling and teaching and healing and casting out demons, people start wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've waited for? And it's fascinating because throughout, he always tells people to remain quiet. He doesn't allow them to spread the secret. They wanna call him Messiah and they wanna make him king and he always retreats. He never claims power just something interesting. He assembles 12 men to follow him, the 12 disciples. They mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. And throughout his, his ministry, he's teaching them. And it's comforting for us because they never get it. They, uh, at every turn in the road, they are misunderstanding what he's about. Because they think if he is the Messiah, if they're following the Messiah, they're soon gonna over, overturn Rome. They're gonna throw off Rome. But Jesus, at some point along the road, he starts divulging to them the secret. And he says, look, here's the thing. Yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah the way you think I am. I've come with an explicit purpose. I've come to teach. I've come to heal. But I've also come to die. I have to die. But don't worry, because after I die, I'm going to be raised to life again. Fast forward to the end of his life, the end of his ministry. This week, this last week that we celebrated, on Thursday night, Jesus is with his 12 disciples and he's in an upper room and he takes bread and cup and cup of wine and he breaks it and he says, look, this is my body. This is my body that's about to be broken for you. As often as you eat of this, because I'm not gonna be able to eat with it, eat it with you much longer, but as often as you eat, remember me. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood 
that's about to be shed for you and for many. As often as you drink, just remember me. There's one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples named Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot had been following Jesus and increasingly becoming disillusioned with this man. Basically, he, he uh, reasons that this is not what I signed up for. If this is what the Messiah means, I don't want to follow this Messiah. I thought we were taking over. I thought we were conquering. I thought we were coming in war, coming by force. And yet Jesus, all he seems to do is heal and not to claim power. And he becomes so disillusioned with this movement that he betrays Jesus. He hands him over to the Jewish high priest for 30 pieces of silver. And so after they have that meal, they go out to a garden, Jesus and his disciples, and they're praying. And Jesus begs his disciples and he says, please stay awake with me, please stay awake. And he goes off by himself and he prays and he says, Father, because he's come to die, if there's any way that I can achieve your will without dying, essentially, please let it happen. If there's any way, if there's another way, and there's silence. And he goes back to his disciples and disciples have fallen asleep. And he wakes them up and says, guys, you have no idea how much I need you right now. Please stay awake just a little bit longer. And he goes back and he prays, says, Father, if the cup can pass, let it pass. But not my will, but yours be done. And he goes back to his disciples and they're asleep again. He's like, friends, please, please, I need you right now. And he goes back and prays a third time, Father. And we're told that he, he's so full of distress that he starts sweating blood. It's like, Father, if there's any way, and there's silence. And he goes back to his disciples and they're asleep yet again. And Jesus, who we come to find out later, is not only fully human, but also fully God, God in flesh. He realizes he's utterly alone. And this cup, this death is for him alone. And so just then the soldiers come with Judas and Judas walks up to Jesus and he greets him. He says, greetings rabbi. And he kisses him on the cheek. And Jesus goes, you've been with me for three years. He didn't say it like this, but essentially he goes, you've been with me for three years and you betray me with a kiss. How ironic. And the soldiers arrest him. And so begins a long night of trials. First, the Jewish uh, high priest, they take him to their courts, but they can't kill him. It's against their law. And there's really no charge. He hasn't done anything illegal deserving of death. And so then they take him to a man named Pontius Pilate. We sung about him a little bit. Pontius Pilate is the governor of, of the, the Roman part of Judea. So um, Israel was under Roman Empire, and Pontius Pilate oversaw the Judea and Galilee regions. And they take him to Pontius Pilate, and like, you need to, we need to kill him, we need to crucify this man. But Pilate's like, I see, no, I see no cause for his death. This is according to your law. But they press, the Jews press, and they're like, no, 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 he needs to die. He's disturbing the peace. And Pilate, he doesn't want a riot to develop. And so as a way to appease the Jews, he's like, all right, fine. So he washes his hands, he's like, his blood be on your hands. And so Rome and Judaism, the Jews and the Gentiles, they conspire together to put God's son to death. And they crucify him. They flog, they flog him. They whip him like crazy and they put a crown of thorns on his head. And the soldiers spit at him and they say, prophesy for us, who struck you? And he remained silent through this whole thing. Jesus remained silent. And they take him up outside of Jerusalem to a hill called Golgotha. And they crucify him and they crucify two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And the different accounts have him, Jesus, muttering different things on the cross. But there are some moments, some very um, powerful moments where at one point, Everyone's ridiculing him. Everyone's mocking him. Everyone's saying, you said you were gonna save the world. You can't even save yourself. If God loves you, let him send his angels and come get you. And he looks at the people around him and he goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. 
And then later on, we're told this horrible, horrible cry, but he quotes a psalm and he cries out and he goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? And then a little while later, he senses something has passed. And he says, it's finished. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last, and he dies. And at that moment, we're told an earthquake happens. Moreover, in in Jerusalem, in the city, which they were just outside, there's a giant temple, the Jewish temple, where all the sacrifices were made. And inside the temple, there are two rooms. There's a holy place and a most holy place. Sacrifices were, were made in the holy place, but in the most holy place, the high priest went once every year to offer one sacrifice for all the people to atone for sin. And there was a curtain, a big curtain separating the two rooms. And when Jesus died, we're told the curtain tears in half from top to bottom. Tears in half. As if to say, no more sacrifices are needed. And then two of his followers, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they take his body and they bury him. They bury him on Friday and he's there on Saturday. And then we get to Sunday, our text. Now through the whole time, through his whole ministry, he told his disciples, look, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna be raised from the dead. That's how, this is how I'm gonna accomplish the messianic task. And so we get to Sunday, and we're told that one of Jesus' followers, a woman named Mary Magdalene, shows up at the tomb. She shows up at the tomb. And this is where we get for our passage today. So we're in John 20, verses 11 through 29. She's at the tomb, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus was not in there. And so she's crying. She doesn't know what to think. She hasn't put it together. And this is what it says. Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, I've seen him. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace to you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you don't, they are retained. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now it's appropriate that Mary Magdalene was told the secret first. It's appropriate that she discovered that Jesus was alive. Tradition holds that we first meet Mary Magdalene earlier in John's gospel, in chapter eight. Uh, She's a woman and she's caught in the act of adultery. Um, And so the crowd drags her in front of Jesus. The, The scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who are trying to trap Jesus, they're trying to find some fault in him. They drag her and we must assume half naked, we don't know, because she was caught in the act. They drag her to Jesus. Now, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, we, we didn't catch the guy. We only caught her. But we, they drag her to Jesus. And they say, teacher, in our law, in our law, women like this should be stoned. Now, what do you say? And tradition holds that Jesus bends down. And he starts writing in the dirt. We don't know what he writes, but he just starts writing. And he stands back up and he goes, whoever has no sin whatsoever, let that person throw the first stone. And he bends back down and he starts writing again. And one by one, the crowd disperses. The oldest ones first. Those who know that they definitely have brokenness in their lives. Until the entire crowd's gone. It's just the woman and Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and goes, woman, has no one condemned you? She says, no one. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so Mary, she does go, but she actually starts following Jesus. She becomes one of his disciples. And so it seems right, knowing this story of Mary, it seems perfectly appropriate that she would be told the secret first, that he's alive. As Jesus' mother sang when she discovered she was pregnant with him, he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. In Jesus' kingdom, it's flipped. In the Christian family, the lowest received the greatest honor. The lowest received the greatest honor. See, those disbelieving the resurrection, they point, usually they allege that that Jesus, or or, I'm sorry, uh, the disciples fabricated this tale, that they made it up. They, They wanted to spread this hoax, but it's very hard to believe that if they're spreading a hoax, if it's not true that Jesus actually wasn't raised, that the first eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus would be Mary Magdalene. In that society, women's voices were totally muted. In a trial, a woman's evidence would not be allowed. It would not be um, allowed. It it wouldn't be deemed credible. And so a woman with Mary Magdalene's past, discovering, being told the secret first, it's hard to think that the disciples would have thought up this detail unless it was how it actually happened. See, in the Christian family, the lowest received the greatest honor. Throughout Christian history, Christianity has always been maligned as a movement of women and slaves. When Christianity spreads to a new region, the first people to accept it, to see its truth, are those at the lowest rungs of society. He reveals the secret to those the world won't believe, as in life, so in death. Once word gets out, I won't be able to hide anymore. What is this secret? What is this secret that he reveals to Mary Magdalene? It's simply this. God has fixed the world through the Messiah. God has fixed the world through the Messiah and a new world has begun. It's the old one, but it's restored. And because of the resurrection, everyone has conferred a new identity. The old one, but restored. See, Mary sees Jesus and doesn't recognize him. What was it about his appearance that she didn't recognize? I don't know, we're not told. But somehow, she didn't recognize him. This is the man that she had followed for three years. Until that is, he says her name, Mary. And she sees him. 
See, on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, in the mystery of this story, to which no human is uh, afforded total knowledge, in the mystery of this story, God abandoned God, and it did not destroy God. The creator allowed himself to be killed by his creation, and it did not destroy the creator. And Jesus is raised to life, and he proves this by telling us our name. The resurrection allows Jesus to tell you your real name, your first name, your restored name. You know what it is? Son and daughter. At the resurrection, Jesus goes, let me tell you who you were at the beginning of time, and let me tell you who you're gonna be forevermore. You are a son and daughter of my Father, We loved you into existence. We loved you because we wanted you. But see, we've forgotten that. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, we've all read in scientific books and indeed in all romances the story of the man who has forgotten his name. This man walks about the streets and can see and appreciate everything, only he cannot remember who he is. Well, every man is that man in the story. Every man has forgotten who he is. We are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. All that we call common sense and rationality and practicality and positivism only means that for certain dead levels of our life, we forget that we have forgotten. All that we call spirit and art and beauty only means that for one awful instant, we remember that we forgot. What's he saying? He's saying we're born into a world and we don't know who we are. Isn't that the primary question we all ask? Who am I? Why am I here? For what purpose do I exist? We have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that we exist to be a son and daughter of the creator. And therefore, because we can't remember this, we don't remember who we are. We spend our lives building civilizations and working and numbing ourselves and distracting ourselves as a way to stave off the the reality that we've forgotten who we are. We don't know our names. But then we have moments of spirit and beauty and art and joy. We have moments when you're with your family and you're sitting around a table finishing a meal and you're laughing hysterically, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or your friends and you're laughing so hard and in that moment, your soul is utterly filled. It's satisfied. You know in that moment, this is who I am. This is right. This is what I was made for. In that moment, we remember that we forgot. Because what happens next? The moment goes away. It passes, it wanes. We get depressed the day after Christmas. And we set back into the normal rat race of forgetting that we don't know who we are. There's a story that Jesus tells in his ministry about two sons. He says a father has two sons and the younger one, you might know it, it's called the prodigal son story. The younger son, at a certain point, he goes to his father while his father's still alive. He says, give me my share of the inheritance, which is a terribly offensive thing to say. It's basically saying, I don't want you, dad. I just want my money. And his father amazingly gives him his share of the inheritance. And the younger son takes his inheritance and he goes to a distant country. And there he squanders it all. He squanders all his wealth in a distant country. And it gets so bad and there's a famine that envelops the land that he hires himself out to feed pigs. Now you have to realize, this is a Jewish audience. And so for a Jewish son to be feeding pigs, and pigs were unclean animals, He's sunk into the bottom. And while he's there, while he's feeding the pigs, we're told he has a realization. He remembers. And what does he remember? That I used to be a son in my father's house. That that the servants of my father's house, they ate better than I'm eating right now. He awakens. He remembers his name. And he starts on his way home. At the resurrection, Jesus looks at each one of us and he goes, 
hey, let me tell you your name. Let me tell you who you are, who you've always been. You've been away in a distant country. You've forgotten. A lot's happened. Let me tell you your name. And Mary hears and she recognizes and she exclaims. But Jesus goes, don't hold on to me, Mary. I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I'm going to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. See, the resurrection, everyone gets a new identity. And it not only allows Jesus to tell us our real name, now he's allowed to tell us God's real name too. And if we are son and daughter, he says, call God Father. Amazingly, in all the gospel accounts, this is the only time where the the second person pronoun is attached to Father here. Usually Jesus says, my Father, my Father. But here he says, go and tell my brothers I go to my Father and your Father. He's your Father now. See, the relationship was broken The relationship was broken. The world was broken. What once was creator and rebellious creation now through me has become father and child again. We've forgotten God's name. In the same way we've forgotten our name, we've forgotten God's name. And so we call him many things. Generally, our imagination runs wild and we think he's pretty angry. It's like, oh, he's he's an angry God. Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Call him father. That's who he is. In the prodigal son story, when the younger brother, when he, the younger son, when he has this awakening, and he's like, how many people eat better in my father's house than I am? Like hired servants. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna apologize and I'm gonna tell him, I'm gonna say, father, I sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired hand. And so he starts off. But what's his plan? His plan is not to be a son anymore. He thinks he forfeited that. His plan is just to be a servant. His his thinking is that his father's angry. His father's no longer his father. Now his father is gonna be his employer. But little does he know, and this is Jesus telling the story, little does he know, while he's still a long way off, his father sees him in the distance and he runs to him. Now you have to keep in mind, this is a patriarchal society. Patriarchs didn't run. It was beneath them. It was deemed uh, embarrassing. And he ran to his son. And his son tries to get out his apology. He tries to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And his father pretty much just shushes him. He takes off his robe and he gives it to his son. He takes off his signet ring, the mark of the family, and gives it to him. He gives him his sandals and he tells his servant, go kill the fattened calf. We're gonna have a party tonight. What is Jesus communicating? He's saying, in the distant country, we forget who God is. We forget God's real name. So we call him angry. We call him wrathful. We call him vengeful. He goes, call him father. He's always been merciful. But you're not going to know that until you return home and get to experience it for yourself. You're not going to know that until you hear him tell you your name. And when we know God's name is father, it changes the names of each other, of everyone else. I think my favorite example of that comes from Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. In the very beginning, Jean Valjean is an ex-convict and he's released from prison and he's trying to find work and he's trying to find a place to live, but no one has given him any benefit of the doubt because he's an ex-convict. I know your name. You're an ex-convict. You can't be trusted. But he's told, try the priest house. And so the priest lets him in. He has an open door. And he shares a meal with the priest and he's agitated because he's been labeled and judged because he's been called, apparently his name now is convict forevermore. And they're having a conversation and somehow they they start talking about his identity. And the priest goes, I know who you are. I know your name. And Valjean snorts at him and goes, you know my name? You know who I am? And the priest goes, yes, your name is my brother. See, when we know our name and when we know God's name as father we know one another's name as brother and sister that changes everything but how see that's the question we're left with okay the resurrection creates a new world the resurrection creates 
new identities. And there really are old identities, but they're restored. How did Jesus do this? How did he accomplish this? And especially in the prodigal son story, if you were a Jewish listener, you'd be very confused. And here's why. Because it's not as easy as welcoming the son back into the family. There's a legal cost. So when the father divided up his wealth, he had 100% of wealth, right? And he divides it up. In Jewish law, the eldest brother gets two-thirds of that as inheritance, 67%. The other 33% goes to the younger brother. And so he liquidates 33% of his wealth and he gives it to the younger son and the son goes off and he spends it. Then he returns home. Now, the father has 67% of his original 100, right? Makes sense. That's his new 100%. But it all belongs to the older brother. That's all his. Now, when the younger brother comes home, if the father puts the signet ring on his hand and the robe on his back and adopts him back into the family as a son, That means he's adopted into the family as a son with all the legal rights and privileges thereof. He gets a new 33%. But the 67%, what remain, that's the elder brothers. And if he's adopted back in, then who has to pay the cost for the younger brother to come back into the family? The elder brother. Jesus bought our way back into the family. Jesus takes on a new name too. The scripture reads, when it was evening on the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples were were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace to you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain, they are retained. But Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, he's alive. And Thomas says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, hey, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, friends, this is the key that unlocks the entire riddle of the gospel. This is it. Jesus has a new name too. God's son, God become flesh, who lived among us, who died and was raised. He has a new name too. God who is now the firstborn of the new creation. And his new name is the scarred king. In the new world, God has scars. See, there's a debt to be paid. Because we travel to the distant country, there's a debt. When we left the house of life, we took on a debt, and the debt was simply, we're gonna die. And Jesus came and died, and the curtain was torn, and because of his sacrifice, he goes, and his resurrection, he says, death no longer holds me. Therefore, it's my free gift that I give to you. And if you don't believe me, look, I have scars too. I have signs, I have visible signs that will cause us all to remember the pain of this world. It's the new world, but it's restored. It's a new name, but it's restored. Friends, this means everything. The gods of Christians, the God of Christians has scars. Zeus was strong. The gods of Rome gave them victory. Who are our modern gods? Our modern gods are the richest, whoever the gods of the rich are, whoever the gods of the beautiful are, whoever the gods of the cool are, they're the real gods. They're who we worship. They're who we go after. Jesus goes, I am the only God and I have scars. 
imperfections, blemishes. I have signs on my body that remind everyone of the debt that I paid. That the world was broken, but don't worry, I have repaired it. See, Easter reminds us, the resurrection reminds us that God is Father and Jesus is the humble and scarred one. And Christians, we are those who boast in our scars. We remember our name by looking at Jesus' scars. Christians, we're not supposed to lead with our strengths. We're not supposed to lead with what makes us really cool and really strong. We lead with the ways that we're broken because when we are weak, then we are strong. And you might be thinking, you don't understand, I have a pain in my life, I have a, a past, I have a history that's too much. No, you don't understand. As the video said, that resurrection once attained works backwards and turns even death to glory. That there's no pain outside of the resurrection power of Jesus. I wanna show a video. Uh, and it's a bit awkward because it's a video that my wife made. Uh, she was a cinematographer. And it's a video that tells a little bit of our story. I know, it's kind of like a professor going, I have a great book recommendation. It's mine. <laughs> but I want to show it because it's, it's how God got through to me. It's how he communicated what the truth of the gospel is, that Jesus has scars. It's how it sort of epitomized everything here, that there's a new world that has begun. And it's the old world, but it's restored. That we are welcomed back into the family, that Jesus has paid the price, that God is our Father. And it's a little bit of our story um, that hits the idea that Jesus is the scarred king. So take a look. I have very visible scars on my face. Red permanent lines narrating the day I threw up pints of blood. Bumpy railroad ridges of skin tell of the summer my father had to bathe me, his 16-year-old son, because I was too weak to clean myself. The discoloration, the asymmetrical bone structure, it witnesses the story after story after story. See, when I look at my scars, I don't see them. I remember them. I'm married now. I remember a night when my wife and I, while dating, were kissing and she began to embrace the left side of my face, the place of my scars. And unknowingly, I tried to redirect her lips back onto mine and as I did, she pulled back. Stop, she said. Do you realize you always do this? Every time I try to kiss your scars, you won't let me. Do you not think I see you? All of you? Do you not think I love all of you? Let me kiss you. I was stunned. She knew my stories. She knew every chapter of my scars history. And yet even still, I would not let her kiss them. Why? Because we think scars are not worthy of a kiss. See, I held this belief that she loved me. That is my personality, my virtue, my character and therefore was overlooking my scars. But the me she found beautiful, the me she fell in love with, was a me only possible because of these marks and the stories they tell. Thus in a breathtaking turn, my scars were beautiful to her because I was beautiful to her. That is to say they were worthy of a kiss. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, making his home among the bleeding and scar-laden creation. And he did so with but one purpose. Jesus came to kiss scars. Do you not think I see you? All of you? Do you not think I love all of you? Let me kiss you. And when we are tempted to disbelieve these words because they just seem too impossible, let us cast our eyes up toward the figure of the resurrected Christ and remember that in this good news, 
our God has scars too. And amazingly, on that last day, it will be scars alone that prove most worthy of a kiss. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to come and kiss scars. And there's not one scar too ugly for the lips of Christ. And you may say, no, no, you don't understand. You don't know what happened to me. Or you may say, no, you don't understand. You don't know what I did. And I say, no, 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 you don't understand. That resurrection once attained works backwards and turns even death to glory. See, Jesus comes and he shows his disciples his scars. He shows them his scars. He goes, look, look. You want to know who God is, what he's like? He's like this. He's a God, a perfect God who loves you so perfectly, who desired you so much that even when you went to the distant country, he came in search of you. He put on flesh. He humbled himself. And I will continue to humble myself. I will humble myself to such a degree that I will receive death. God died for you and for me, for our scars. And he goes, I love you so much that death cannot hold me because I am life. But look, I have signs on my body that will remind you for eternity that scars alone will be worthy of a kiss, that I have redeemed everything, that I have made all things new. Will you come home? Will you come home? Will you let me kiss you? Will you close your eyes with me? I wanna address a couple people in the room. Like I said at the beginning, we're a community of crowds and disciples, but I don't know where anyone is on this journey. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but there was something stirred in this, there's something stirred in today's message and today's worship that you're interested in learning more. I'm not asking you to become a Christian right now, but if there's something about this story the story of the scarred God, the story of a family that leads with our brokenness and not our strengths. So there's something about that that just stirs in the pit of your soul. I wanna ask you to pray. To pray to a God you're not sure you believe in. And just say, Jesus, if you are alive, if this is real, then I'll take a step towards you. Will you meet me? I'll turn my face towards you. Will you just meet me? If you're here, maybe you've been away from the church for a while, that you've forgotten that God is Father, you've forgotten your name, that you're a son and a daughter, you've forgotten that Jesus is the scarred God, the scarred King, that his love is eternal and inexorable. Would you say, Jesus, you have permission to tell me my name. Tell me my name. Kiss my scars. If it's true that there's no scar, no matter how heinous it feels, there's no scar that's too ugly for your kisses, for your lips, for your love, then you can kiss them. And if you're here, and you know Jesus is Lord. If he said your name, and like Mary, you responded, and your eyes were open and said, teacher, would you just thank him? And anew, offer up yourself to his lips. Jesus, forgive us when we don't boast in our scars. Forgive us when we don't lead with our weaknesses because that confuses people. We are people 
who know that you are the firstborn of the new creation, of the new world. And you're the firstborn with scars. And therefore, our job is to witness to this story that you love the world so much you came, that God, who God is, who the creator is, and his core is humble, is love. That you, Jesus, would give up everything, even your God-likeness, even your unity with the Father, and on the cross, God would be abandoned by God. God would be forsaken by God for the sake of love for your creation. Would you speak to your people, Lord? God, would you speak to your people? Would you tell them their names? Tell them who they are. Tell them who they've always been. Tell them that then when they were away in a distant country, you were looking out the window every day into the distance wondering if they were gonna come home. Tell them that you've paid the price, that Jesus, you've bought their way back into the family, that there's no debt, there's no debt. Just come to the feast, come to the party. Lord, remind us in the power of your resurrection. Tell our hearts that you're alive. You're alive. And death has no hold on you. Therefore, it will not have hold on us. Give us courage, Lord. Give us courage to go and be humble and to love others more than ourselves speak truth and to witness to your incredible news that you came to kiss scars. It's in your name we pray. Amen.